watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple homos review the latest streaming releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and we have six movies for you today. The Prom, Ammonite, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Let Them All Talk, Mank, and Sound of Metal. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... The pandemic is too short for that mess, especially now that there are vaccines. <laughs> and a mutant version of the virus <laughs> making its way to the UK. That too. <laughs> Either way, time's, uh, time's running out, <laughs> whichever way you look at it. So uh, you don't <laughs> want to spend it watching, uh, watching movies that don't spark joy. Uh, Rebecca, what is up with you? You know, as they say, as goes Jason, so goes the rest of the binge. We also <laughs> decided to take the plunge into the home buying real estate world. And uh, we're going to be moving to Palm Springs in uh, in just a few weeks. Oh, my God. So, so depending on when this episode comes out, you might already be there. <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah. Yes. You know, under the, the mountain of paperwork, I try to find my editing software and uh, turn this podcast around. But we'll see. Who knows? Uh, this might happen March, April. Who can say? <laughs> wild, 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 wild. So uh, so why Palm Springs? It is my favorite place on Earth. Mm. And, uh, and it's uh, affordable. So, you know. <laughs> Why not? I'm hoping to have, you know, I did listen to our previous podcasts when I was recording them. And uh, <laughs> I will heed all of your advice, except I guess I'm talking about it too soon, right? Am I according to the um, well, Jason Leroy School of... No, I think because you're waiting until after you already had the inspection. Um, that was my that was my thing. Like, don't talk about it until after the inspection. Okay. Um, okay. So you had that. So you already are uh, aware of uh, of those issues, and so you are moving forward with full knowledge uh, of 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 the thing. So I think there's a, a fine time to talk about it, and I congratulate okay. you. Thank you. I mean, things are only going to get worse when I get in there, and they haven't done an inspection on me, and I'm going to tear some shit up. <laughs> right now, as always, you, you are the menace right yep. yes right it's just mm -hmm. a human sinkhole that's uh, that's just wherever you go um well that's incredible um, so we'll be closer again i think you know you know if we ever get to a point where this virus is under control maybe we can do an in-person again Oh my gosh, that'd be wild. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we're going to be about two, about a two hour drive away from each other, mm -hmm. um, which is more or less how long it took to take Bart back and forth from yes. uh, from from my apartment to your apartment in the Bay Area. So mm -hmm. how do you feel about uh, about leaving the Bay Area? I feel OK about it. I mean, I'll be, we'll be coming back when work fires up again, try to figure out how to split our time. You know, Teacup doesn't want to leave the bay necessarily although she did mm. enjoy her time in palm springs so she likes the bustle of the city but she also likes the heat of the desert so feel okay about it you know it's been it's been 10 years um time to mix sweater weather weather with a little bit of uh short shorts weather <laughs> and i know that you do love both of those weathers um, i do and you and you have an ample wardrobe for both so, <laughs> so I, have, I know uh, you're ready some daisy dukes just collecting dust in the closet <laughs> 
We'll take him out, hit him against a rock, knock that dust off, and throw him on because <laughs> it's about to be round, round, round the clock, Daisy Duke weather. Uh, it is, it is kind of fun that you know, in the same way that so many of us kind of moved to Bay Area in a in a caravan from Ohio. <laughs> um, now, mm-hmm. so also we are relocating to Southern California in a similar caravan because, as uh, as some of our listeners know, our friend Heidi preceded both of us uh, in moving from Bay Area to LA way back in the beginning of the pandemic, followed by me at the beginning of October, and then you'll be hitting up Palm Springs uh, in January. So it's it's just it's it's you know these trends they happen organically and that's just that's just the fact of the matter yeah she better keep running uh to catch up to her <laughs> what's what's up with you jason well thanks for asking um as we tape this it is the sunday before christmas so um so you know just uh, just doing whatever qualifies as festive in the 2020 yuletide season um I have been so every year I starting in the beginning of December, I like will only play Christmas music um, around the house. And because that's how I am, you know, it's I think even under the best of circumstances, it can be trying, um, particularly on Scott, uh, but even on me at times, because, you know, you can only take so much cheer um, and, you know, or hearing the same song done for the 135th time um, in a slightly different arrangement. Um, so add to that um, the, the, the reality of Christmas 2020 and the songs do take on a somewhat mocking tone. <laughs> it gets to be challenging, um, but, uh, but I'm still sticking with it and I will continue to only play Christmas music until the 26th. And I am clinging to that sense of normalcy. And uh, on top of that, we also, for the very first time in uh, 14 years together, we bought a Christmas tree. Oh, wow. Oh, it, yeah, yeah. No, we went for it. We got a tree on Wayfair where we get all of our things. And, a uh, fake tree? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was amazing how quickly um, it all came back to me because growing up, at uh, my mom's house, at least, we always had a fake tree. It was like the same tree every year. Um, you know, it would sit in this long box with all of the branches folded down, um, you know, in the basement all year. And then we would get out after Thanksgiving, unfold the branches, stick it up, throw the ornaments on, have fun. And so to once again be taking a fake tree out of a box and unfolding those branches one by one, oh, it did something to me. It really, it was I, I couldn't even believe uh, how much emotion it triggered. Oh. And and Scott marveled at how adept I was at unfolding all those branches. He wasn't just standing back and letting me handle it because I was just like a whirling dervish. Yes, a whirling dervish. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. And yeah, it's just kind of interesting being in the house for the first time for Christmas and just kind of seeing, um, you know, where that takes us in terms of, uh, you know, celebrating. So... Um, and today it meant um, sitting in the pool and playing Christmas music out of our outdoor speakers. So because <laughs> that's what L.A. Christmas is, I guess. Uh, just like Joni Mitchell sang about in River all those years ago. So, mm. um, but yeah, so just kind of gearing up for uh, for whatever Christmas will be uh, this year. And I'm just kind of like desperately trying to approximate and recreate um, whatever has happened in the past that feels Christmassy and traditional so that you feel somewhat less isolated. Uh, mm. Are you uh, are you feeling festive? Uh, no, we ordered a ham though, so. Oh, see. 
<laughs> um, uh, we are also looking at our ham options at the moment. We're we're we're, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, we're deep deep into ham options. There's a restaurant nearby that kind of does a pre pre made situation, so we're doing that for Christmas Day. Mm. Um, and then Christmas Eve is going to be more of a traditional, uh, you know, spaghetti type situation. But so, uh, I'm sorry, traditional for 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 who? Me, um, oh. Italian Americans. Feast of oh, Seven Fishes, classic. That sounds like a wonderful Christmas Eve dinner and worlds removed from the Polish Christmas Eve dinner that I grew up eating. Which was? <laughs> um, well, essentially, it boiled down to, um, I think the original version of it was literally just uh, sauerkraut, <laughs> uh, pierogies, uh, a horrendous soup known as borscht, um, and mashed potatoes. And that was it. And then I think like my my mother eventually, you know, sort of uh, assimilated and decided to add like a pork chop or something to it, mm. much to the chagrin of her of her Polish elders. Um, so it was always growing up. Christmas Eve dinner was like a last barricade <laughs> to Christmas morning. It was like you had to pay your penance by <sighs> choking down like disgusting fucking sauerkraut and borscht. Oh, and also bread but only rye bread like it literally yeah. felt like it was designed to be as unpleasant as possible um as is the polish way so <laughs> uh and the poles are apparently behind the cyberpunk game on for the ps5 so that's how that's how the poles have unleashed uh chaos during this holiday season so, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, well, that sounds like a wonderful, um, food plan and, uh, and, and, and you have reminded me to double check our own ham order. So thank you for that. Yes. And that, you know, that's the public service we provide here at the binge. Everyone check your hams. Everyone make sure, because you know what, you don't want to, you can't go out to the store on Christmas day to get a ham. It's just, especially in 2020, it's just not, just not doable. It's chaos. Shall we get to the movies? So they have six of them this week. Oof. Movie number one is... The Prom. Down on their luck, Broadway stars shake up a small Indiana town as they rally behind a teen who wants to go to the prom with her girlfriend. You were you were sending me links about this movie when we were taping our last podcast, I think. You already had things to say. Yeah, that's right, because I had already I had already watched it. Um I had an early screener for it, and so I'd watched it, I think, just before we taped our last one. And I was preparing you for the cordon of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd sent you Richard Lawson's Vanity Fair review, um, which was incredibly eloquent and scathing in its takedown of the Corton of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you watched it, um, did you find that the criticism was warranted? I found uh, the criticism of James Corden's portrayal of a queer character the least of my concerns or problems with this movie. Whoa. All right. Well, let's have it. <laughs> Lay them out. Lay them out. So let me, let me ask you some questions. So this is made by Ryan Murphy. Yeah. Uh, who on one hand has not made a film before, correct? No, not true. He directed uh, the running with scissors movie. He directed eat, pray, love with Julia Roberts. Oh. Um, he's directed some um, made for TV movies, like the normal heart for HBO and mm. boys in the band for Netflix. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so he's he's done features before. Um, this is arguably his, I think it's his first um, musical feature. Um, so that's but that's one credit you can give it. Also not right because you have Glee, 
Well, so, feature, I said. Uh, yeah, right, first, right. Yeah, yeah, I, I was yeah. trying to put together the pieces of why this feels so amateurish. And and coming from, from Glee and, and coming from how beautifully his his TV work is filmed, uh, I'm thinking of like the Gianni Versace story. I could not believe this was the same person. I think one of the first things that we noted about this movie was how many backs you see. It's like hmm. everyone has their back to the camera uh, during a significant amount of time. And it's also weirdly framed in mm. in that there's a lot of empty space around the characters that make it not like make the scenes not very impactful. It was very, very strange compared to, again, Glee, um, American Horror Story. Um, what is it? American Crime Story. Is that what the other series is called? Right. About, about um, your style, your style icon, Andrew Cunanan. Oh, go on. <laughs> Uh, and even comparing it, you know, in recent memory to something like Cats, which is just like a uh, a, a nightmare and, and, a, and a blemish on, on our culture and society, but also was a, a movie that looked like a movie with performers, you know, centered and focused on. And um, some dance scenes were, were very strange, Cats on the Train Tracks, but uh, <laughs> weird proportions, giant sure. fish, small small trains <laughs> small cat giant fork yeah <laughs> well now everyone knows my password uh... <laughs> did you see something that there was like a report that, that came out that trump's password was literally maga 2020 with an exclamation point <laughs> yes <laughs> boy oh boy anyway uh anyway yeah, so, that yes. that was just it was really hard to get over. Um, there, like, uh, kind of one of the opening scenes is is um, kind of we have your main characters, Nicole Kidman, Ralph Streep, your um, was it Corden, and they're kind of all doing this musical number in this bar, and it's just so so lost. It maybe it was it a twenty twenty thing? Is it a quarantine situation? Where is it like the first couple episodes of Saturday Night Live this year, where it was like everything was a little off because they didn't have as many people on deck as they were supposed to, but it was just un- it was just unbelievable. Interesting, interesting. That's honestly none of those thoughts occurred to me when I watched it at all. Um, like I did not notice any of that. Um, wow. Like to me, it just had a, it to me. It was just it was very bright. Um, so you know, all, all I noticed was just the brightness of it all, um, which somehow just felt Netflix appropriate. Um, huh. It was just you know very 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 bright, very saturated. Um, so, and I didn't notice anything about the negative space or filming people's backs. Um, so yeah, none of that, none of that caught my eye. Um, but it sounds like it certainly, uh, undermined any even basic, uh, enjoyment of the film for you since you were, you were just so uh, distracted by what, what, what seemed like very amateurish filmmaking. And it was just, it was really hard to get lost in it for those reasons. Uh, weird costumes, a weird, weird number of sequins that it seemed like they were matching but they weren't i don't know it was hard Hmm. to get lost in this movie yeah well for me i think and i have not seen the musical that it's based on um Mm -hmm. but you know for me i think that where it loses me is it feels like you know there's two different stories here it's like two different movies in one one of them was to me a very very funny showbiz satire Mm-hmm. Um, that felt like it would have would have been not out of place in like a 30 rock parody. <laughs> um, yes. You know, uh, like when Jenna says she hates the troops. 
Um, <laughs> um, and then the other half of it is like a very earnest um, teen high school drama, um, which I did not enjoy that part of the movie. So, you know, I know that when you're watching the movie, you're supposed to be sort of like rooting for this teenage girl um, played by a newcomer who I believe his name is Joellen Perlman or mm-hmm. Pillman. Um, but I, I just didn't care about her or what was happening to her. Um, and part of it, I didn't even realize until I was reading some, a piece of criticism today. Part of it has to do, I think, with her performance, because somebody noted that it seems like the only direction that she was given the entire movie was smile. (laughs) Because no matter what's happening to her, she just has this look of just complete, just like contentment and peace and happiness on her face. Um, And that makes it really hard to become emotionally invested in her arc and what's going on with her. Um, Because in theory, you know, like she, um, you know, on the page is going through a really painful, uh, humiliating experience, uh, you know, sort of being discriminated against on the national stage. Um, But you would never know that from watching this performance because she's just kind of like, she's just kind of like, oh, well, Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a puzzler. It was really hard to judge where, you know, certain points of the movie, uh, because it also has a, a, kind of not traditional arc as well, right? Like the Broadway stars coming to the town and like saying their piece happens really fast. And then like a judgment is made in in the situation with the prom, like mm-hmm. very fast in the movie as well. And so then when all these things happen, I think you're looking to her to kind of tell you how to feel and it doesn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't yeah, know well, how she exactly. feels. Exactly. No, well said. Um, yeah, you are kind of looking to her like you need to believe her emotional reaction to it so you can go there as a viewer. And she doesn't really have much of one. Um, so, yeah, because there is this kind of really, yeah, you, you feel like uh, you know, as you're getting toward this sort of late middle point in the movie that you're like, OK, I guess it's all over. Um, and then it's actually this very sort of awful beat and switch that her character is um, subjected to. And um, and I think that, you know, to me, I'd be like, okay, well, that must be where the first act of the musical ends. Mm-hmm. And and then true to form, and I, I found this for, for many musicals, um, like the movie's momentum ends there. Mm. Like I felt like the whole movie up until that point had a really natural momentum and energy to it. And when that happens, it just kills it dead. And when it comes back from that, and it starts with one of my least favorite things, you know, which is like maudlin gay teen singing song on YouTube. Um, (laughs) Your watch history begs to differ. (laughs) This hate watching, I swear. Um, (laughs) I'm just seeing if I can muster any tears and uh, still can't. But um, but yeah, I mean, many times seeing live stage musicals, you know, whenever they come back from um, intermission, you know, the second act usually runs a little bit shorter than the first act did. And frankly, more often than not, I feel like struggles to regain the momentum um, that the first act had. And I feel like that was very much true here. So I felt like I mean, all, all the things I liked about the first act, um, I felt like in terms of the energy, the zip, the humor, the showbiz satire, all that stuff just dissipates in the second act. And then it just becomes a very straightforward, very maudlin, very saturine kind of story. That's just like an, it gets better type thing. 
And it turns out that they actually changed a fair bit from the stage show, um, some of which involves Corden's character um, and uh, the whole thing with, uh, you know, trying to reconcile him with his parents uh, that Meryl Streep does. Um, you know, uh, the actual, the final beat of that was added for the movie to make it more cheerful. Mm. Um, everything with uh, with Carrie Washington's character, uh, mm. who plays the disapproving mother of um, of uh, of the young lesbian teens, uh, like closeted cheerleader girlfriend. Um, she is not in the big finale in the actual stage show because she had already like stormed off or whatever. Um, and but I guess Carrie Washington apparently just said she's like, well, I said I wanted to be in that number, so they wrote me into it. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what happens when you're Carrie Washington. <laughs> I guess so, but I mean, it really is putting, you know, self over movie, uh, because... I mean, it's an Uncle Frank for you, if, if, there, if there ever is one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really just kind of like, okay, well, that character's change of attitude has now hit remarkable speed, <laughs> um, so, okay, uh, and I mean, you know, I don't, I feel like it was just, it's a, it's a thankless role, and Carrie Washington was too good for it in the first place. Um, mm. so, I mean, watching her play that role, I was like, Carrie Washington, why are you playing this role? Like, there's nothing to this part. Um, so, but, you know, she's there for some reason. Um, speaking and, of, uh, she's there yeah. for some reason. There are too many characters in this movie. I think the, <laughs> the Nicole Kidman, um, character, Andrew Rannell's character, um, you have the whole Keegan-Michael Key playing the principal, there's kind of a lot going on for a musical where, you know, every so often you're going to have these breaks and you also had this main story happening. Um, I felt like it just, it, it seemed, uh, it again, continued to d detract from any sort of powerful storyline. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an ensemble piece and I guess that their solution to that was just to cast every role with a really famous person in the hopes that it would, you know, just kind of make it more engaging and on the on the note on the note of casting, I feel like the the my my main uh, kind of wish for the movie is that it had switched to casting of James Corden and Andrew Rannells. Mm-hmm. And sure. uh, and I and I know I gather that you know I think part of why they wanted Corden that in the role that he has, um, you know, is you're you're meant to understand his character to be um, a bit older, a bit more washed up, perhaps a bit more physically unappealing. Um, you know, like a Nathan Lane type, not that Nathan Lane's washed up, but, you know, meant to be that kind of like older Broadway queen. Um, so but in, in the fact, and I was, I was busy moving. So, um, got to LA the tail end of the shoot. Um, but, um, and here's the thing though. I think Andrew Rannells is probably, I think he's actually James Corden's age. Um, Andrew Rannells is, is, he's in his early forties. Um, what? I know. I know. You know, I'm looking it up right now cause I don't believe you. Oh, no, go, go right ahead. I, I guarantee you Andrew Rannell is over 40. Andrew Rannells. Um, I don't know how old James Corden is. I'm going to guess he's probably early, mid-40s. I'll wait for your research. He's 42! Yeah. Yeah. What? I know. Ugh. Yeah. James Corden is... 42! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I feel vindicated. <laughs> as, you, as you should, as you should. So, but I think you know. But there, but since Andrew Reynolds does have that, like, oh perennially... hold on, Andrew Reynolds hmm. was born August twenty third, nineteen seventy eight. James Corden was born August twenty second, nineteen 
1978. <laughs> James Corden is one day older than him. I mean, I couldn't have written that. That's wild. That's wild. <laughs> well, clearly yeah. Leo's. <laughs> Very Leo. Leo is strong in them. Um, but no, since Andrew Randall has that perennially boyish quality to him, um, you know, which allowed him to play Elijah on Girls, despite being apparently in his mid to late 30s at the time. <laughs> um, you know, like that's, I think they thought that he would not have been um, as believable in the role. Um, but he would have been right for it. He just would have been right for it. Like, I think, you know, Corden should have been sidelined um, as like the backup gay uh, who has like one big number at a truck rally or whatever. And that's it. Um, you know, the, the ongoing kind of oversaturation of James Corden, I don't understand. I don't understand, um, why he is repeatedly foisted upon us. And, uh, and in this movie, coming back to the original subject, uh, that we were talking about, I do feel like it is, it's a performance that made me angry. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and I know it's one of those things where, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that I don't think that straight actors can or should play gay characters. But whenever it starts to feel like it's it's verging on caricature, on gay caricature, then I start to have an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about James Corden, his whole thing being like the musical theater guy already feels like he's co-opting gay culture in a way. Um, you know, hosting the Emmys or the, not the Tonys every year, um, you know, being in movies like Into the Woods and now this. And, uh, you know, so, but doing all that with the just full-blown, intense confidence of a straight white man. You know, so James Corden has always had such, you know, I think part of what has made him such a inescapable figure is that despite having the sort of having not the physical type that Hollywood frequently looks for, he has such insane super confidence bordering on, dare I say, swagger. Um, and it just makes him pop and it makes people keep putting him in things. And that's something that you have as a person whose existence is not challenged by the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's part of, so I think that's part of what I resent about him getting to enjoy the spoils of gay culture and play gay roles. Um, because how he got there was basically through not being gay, um, through moving through life as a straight white man um, and having all of the abundance of confidence thereof. So to see him playing this part was it just made me angry. And it's one of those things where you're like, you, you know it when you see it in terms of when you feel mm-hmm. like this is, this is crossing a line. And I was taken there by maybe the f- fifth minute of the movie <laughs> um, and remained there throughout. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm angry about that performance. All right, let's hear it, Jason. What are you giving it? Um, for me, it's still a consume overall. Um, because I don't have the overall, you know, my problems with the movie are more about that performance. And I do think it runs out of steam halfway through, but I mean, I was, I was tickled pink watching the early scenes of the Broadway actors in New York. I could not have been enjoying myself more. Um, I thought that, you know, Meryl's Patty LuPone impression is delectable. Um, it's always fun to see Nicole Kidman kick back and, and do what she understands to be fun. 
Um, <laughs> Andrew Rannells is a prince. He's an angel. Um, so, you know, I thought Keegan-Michael Key, I thought this was a great role for him. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's there were things about the movie that I really enjoyed. Um, and in general, I was fully entertained, um, again, up until um, Act 2. So I can't give it a send it back. So for me, it's a consume. Well, don't worry. I can do it. Send it back. <laughs> um, it yeah, it did not. It did not do anything for me. And you know, as we're applying um, our sincere ratings, our uh, during this this time when I was thinking about how uh, in the last in the last podcast you had mentioned uh, Home for the Holidays um, uh. being one of your uh, your favorite. Uh, Christmas movie or holiday movie and how I hadn't seen it and I was like oh man I wish I was watching that instead of this <laughs> and for for every one of those you know there are there are 50 other movies I'd rather be watching so this is getting a cinema back for me it is streaming on Netflix and it is rated PG-13 you can figure out why <laughs> you don't want to read them in the brackets is it, no the I don't want to read them you? anymore yeah the brackets in Rio <laughs> okay. movie number two another musical <laughs> Uh, No, movie number two is Ammonite. (laughs) In 1800s England, a fossil hunter, Mary Anning, works alone on the rugged southern coastline. When a wealthy visitor entrusts Mary with the care of his wife Charlotte, she cannot afford to turn his offer down. Mary initially clashes with her unwelcome guest, but despite the distance between their social class and personalities, an intense bond begins to develop. So the theme of these first two movies is queer disappointment. Uh, <laughs> right? Oy, yeah. Um, I, I, I think for the rest of these movies after the prom, I have no inkling of your take on them because we have not discussed them at all. Um, mm. So I'm very, I'm very excited to hear. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know yours either. Um, I feel like I want to just start with the rating and then move backwards. <laughs> 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 I mean, you do you. Um, so this movie is by Francis Lee, and he is a queer director um, who had made a movie prior to this that you really enjoyed, right? Yeah, God's Own Country. Um, wonderful, wonderful film. Um, one of the one of the best uh, sort of gay romantic dramas I've ever seen. Which I had only connect the dots on because uh, the actor who was in uh, who's in this movie, uh, who plays a doctor, was also in. Uh, um, yeah. Our, uh, Amulet. Amulet. Yes. Yes. Uh, talk about a face that I wouldn't think would be unrecognizable or would be so recognizable. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yes. Um, this. It it's really hard to not compare this to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Is that is that me just looking at uh, layers of dresses and seaside costumes and the time period and making that connection, or or do you do you feel that way as well? Uh, you're being reductive, obviously. No, no, of course it's not just you. <laughs> like literally every single article about this movie has pointed out that it's like the shitty, mediocre English language <laughs> counterpart to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, I think Vulture even ran a listicle that was like how to tell signs that you're in a, in a you know, 19th century lesbian romance um, <laughs> um, comparing comparing these two. Wow. Um, okay. So, Good. yeah, no, you're you're you know, you're you're the tip of an iceberg on, on that particular analogy. Um, I mean, I feel like when you have these two movies so closely um, come out 
And one is just Portrait of Lady on Fire. So moving, so passionate, so uh, mysterious and and engaging. And I mean, you've already you've already said it with a shitty American washed mm. washed over version um, of that. I I don't know I don't know what the draw to this movie would be other than the fact that you know you're curious what it's like to watch Saoirse Ronan and uh, uh, Kate Winslet get it on. Yes, uh, which is the primary uh, uh, reason to see this movie, um, because boy, they go for it. They do go for it uh, in a way that feels weird. <laughs> Please elaborate. Um. Okay. So, I, uh, my partner Sol and I were were, <laughs> were talking about this, and and actually rewatched it um, to see if we could we were accurately remembering like what the lead up to this like big passionate scene is. And, and um, it's that uh, Saoirse Ronan's character, um, Charlotte is mm-hmm. leaving. And so they're having this kind of like goodbye evening and for, I mean, just for a relationship between two people that is so uh, devoid of words or um, uh encouragement or uh any kind of romance or passion to have this scene feels gratuitous out of place we both (laughs) separately had come to this like comparison to atomic blonde where you have this very energetic sex scene that matches up so well with the energy of the movie and matches up with the personality of the characters involved and in this movie it just feels so bizarre because it is not the same movie that you've been watching for the past hour and a half mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and it's just hard to believe that they would handle themselves in in such a deft way um having <laughs> the, one character who lives with her mother digging up fossils on the shore of england her whole life um doing things like the whole movie has led up with these like, you know, tiny scenes of, of really grotesque things. Um, and another character who is, you know, de- depressed and, and, and married to a man. I just, it seems very bizarre. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It, there's, there's a real lack of chemistry between uh, mm-hmm. these two actresses. Um, and, and frankly, it, it's, it's a little, um, y- you don't really exactly see, how they are attracted to one another, especially <laughs> you don't necessarily see how Charlotte is attracted to Mary um, because, you know, the way Kate Winslet plays the character, um, it, it is not appealing. <laughs> uh, you know, she plays it in, it's almost like she just kept repeating the word dour, dour, dour in her mind. So like, <laughs> to remind herself of like what her vibe is meant to be as this character. And might I add, it turns out that apparently there is quite literally no evidence that the real Mary Anning was a lesbian. Uh, right. She, she was, however, uh, like one of the most, one of the most accomplished um, archeologists of her time and a trailblazing female archeologist at that. And now <laughs> the first, all these years <laughs> later, there's probably a movie about her. And the most notable thing that happens to her is Saoirse Ronan sits on her face. So, <laughs> quite a confusing You dug up all those little fish bones for nothing, <laughs> Mary. <laughs> or She's did like she? A, I, I know, exactly. Or does it actually connect? 
Um, you know, and then she's just like, oh, there's a film about me. How wonderful. And they, they did what? Um, yeah, Ammonites yep. is 1800 lime slang for <laughs> sex acts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, and there are, you know, if you haven't seen them, there are amusing quotes from Kate Winslet out there in which she attempts to describe the process through which she and Sersha choreographed the sex scene. Because she says something about like Francis Lee was very nervous to like direct them. And so she was like, right, we've got this. And um, so she was like, she's like, oh, you know, it's like eating a sandwich. Um, it's like, what? What? Um, and, she, and she's like, yeah. So I just kind of said to her, like, okay, well, I'll just touch your boobs here and then I'll go down there and then you'll hop up there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow. it's like, you know, so which is to say, Kate Winslet understands lesbian sex completely. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's always a, a question, um, and, and I've seen reflected in other lesbian writings about this movie that they felt that that scene, at least parts of it, um, did seem to reflect an honest understanding of lesbian sex, as opposed to just sort of like two actresses who are directed to just sort of like make out for a while. I mean, I guess, but it still seems like a... It seems like they pulled out some deep cut moves for some people who were pretty repressed in a in a time and place where I feel like they're made they're, the story thus far had not um, led us to believe they were very experimental people. Right, that they that they could get down in that particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this versus the mouse spitting from Disobedience, which would you say was the more convincing, authentic representation of a uh, lesbian sexuality? Mouse spitting for sure. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Not this one. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, and that's really, um, you know, that scene kind of really is the reason for the movie because the rest of it, there's just nothing. Uh, there's just nothing going on. It's dull, 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 dull as shit. Um, the acting is not notable, um, which is like, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the last time that I had felt that bored watching Kate Winslet or Sergio Ronan. You know, they are obviously two of the brightest lights of the acting world. And just boring as shit. Just nothing. Nothing there. I mean, when you get um, when you tell them to not talk for an hour and a half and to just <laughs> right. like dust bones, it gets a little there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Um I mean the most interesting character is Fiona Shaw? Is a Fiona Shaw character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? She comes on like like beaming into the scene. <laughs> Give me more of she, that. She steals the whole movie. Um, you know, and we have this kind of understanding, this kind of tacit understanding that, you know, that she perhaps is an ex of Kate Winslet's and that they she's used to the have Aubrey like Plaza a, of this movie. Yeah. I mean, she's the Holland Taylor to the Sarah Paulson played by Kate Winslet. Huh. Um, no, but she's like the, you kind of like, why? I mean, yeah. her and Charlotte start to hit it off. You're like, well, why wouldn't she end up with her? We're all disappointed mm-hmm. that she ends up with Mary. <laughs> And then, and then, all leading to this kind of like almost punchline final scene in London, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was like, okay, well, now it's starting to feel more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like that was the part where it was like, okay, now, now, now it seems like maybe Francis Lee has met a lesbian before in his life, <laughs> um, but uh, up until that point, it's just a just a big head scratch. So, uh, yeah, yeah, not not much about this movie uh, to to commend it. No, and it's a T-Bod, right? So uh, you had to mm-hmm. uh, put up a pretty pretty penny for this one, yes, uh, which leads some. to um, send it back. Yeah, I'm going to go with send it back on this one, too. 
yeah. And, it, and it's, I think I was talking to someone the other day about how, like, between this and Happiest Season, it's just like lesbians are getting pummeled with these uh, these movies at the end of the year <laughs> <laughs> that are that are giving such hope, um, and then just ultimately really being letdowns. Real letdown. Um, what would you What would you take between this and Happiest Season? Woof. Um, Happiest Season. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Same. Definitely. I mean, at least it's at least it's like light and fun. Right, and you have Dan Levy. I don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Mary Steenburgen's yeah. iPad. <laughs> of course. Well, let's not forget the Which real star your, of the show. Your password. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is long, but nobody guesses it. <laughs> what are you you're giving this one? Send it back as well. Yeah, send it back. Yeah. Okay, it is, uh, as I said, a TVOD, so it's available for rent um, and on Apple TV, Amazon, and Google Play, and it's rated R <laughs> um, for RAR. Is that bad? Um, <laughs> movie number three is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Tensions and temperatures rise over the course of an afternoon recording session in 1920s Chicago as a band of musicians await trailblazing performer Ma Rainey. And as the band waits in the studio's rehearsal room, Ambitious cornet player Levy spurs his fellow musicians into an eruption of stories, revealing truths that will forever change the course of their lives. Lesbian disappointments. This is not. <laughs> you don't think so? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, huh? I can see how you could say so, but I don't think so. You're the more seasoned professional here, and this movie requires a more seasoned professional, so I, I defer to you. It's like you only you only compliment me when it benefits you. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you just start listening? <laughs> Weaponizing your flattery. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah. So this is an adaptation of an August Wilson play. Um, it is the second high-profile such adaptation after Fences from a few years back. Um, this is from what I can, from what I've read, the only August Wilson play that does not take place in Pittsburgh, uh, his hometown and mine. Mm. Uh, and as such, I hate it. No. Um, he did write happy a season, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was also him. Um, so cast a wide net. Um, so yeah, so this is, uh, to, to you know, it's a shorter movie than I expected. I'll start with that. Yes. Um, you know, it feels like a one act play. Um, like it kind of feels like it's just like this tiny little snapshot. Um, I kept wondering if like it was going to kind of zoom out and, and kind of take on a, a longer timeline or anything like that. But no, it's really more or less, you know, has like a, a, a prologue where we see Marini and her band performing, um, you know, very electrifying performance for a crowd. Um, it actually, it just, the opening shot of this movie is one of my favorite things about it. Uh, because the opening shot of the movie, we see, um, you know, we see uh, it's a it's a forest at night, mm. and we see two black men, uh, you know, wearing like uh, you know, sort of like overalls, um, in white shirts, running, and we hear dogs barking, and and at first, my response to that was like, oh boy, you know, like, like this is you know, like this is you know, are we are we going to have to watch, um, you know, racialized violence or these you know, enslaved men fleeing, uh, you know, captors, what is this? And then, like, lickety-split, we see what they're running to, which is a line to get into a venue to watch Ma Rainey and her band. 
And that was so genius. That was chef's kiss mm-hmm. to me. That was such, that was such a, an incredible opening shot. Um, so we see the Ma Rainey, Ma Rainey in the band, Viola Davis, deep into drag, all up in drags, mm. uh, like, and just going for it with a lip sync. Um, so, uh, so we get, you know, some, some sort of introductory sense of the dynamic in this performance. Uh, we see you know, Ma Rainey, of course, as the star of the show, but then we see that Levy, uh, as you mentioned, the cornet player who's played by Chadwick Boseman, um, is also wanting the spotlight. And in addition to the spotlight is also interested in, um, in Ma Rainey's younger girlfriend. Um, so those things are established by the prologue. And then we move into the meat of the story which does take place over the case over the course of a, a single afternoon as Ma and her band are summoned by Ma's manager, who's a white man uh, who is looking to have her record two songs um, in a session so that they can sell it. And, um, you know, and uh, that's, 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 you know, the rest of the movie plays out over that, over that landscape. And although the movie is called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it's ultimately not so much about Ma um, this is definitely not uh, a, a traditional um, biopic in any mm-hmm. in any sense. You do not come out of it knowing much about Ma Rainey, um, other than a sense of kind of like who she was, what she did, what she looked like. Um, that's that's kind of the 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 long and short of it. And the material doesn't necessarily give Viola Davis much range, even emotionally. Uh, we we mainly see Ma in a very uh, sort of combative state, um, which we do have. Um, you know, she eventually gets a monologue to kind of explain why she is so unpleasant um, in this recording session, um, and uh, and we get to see her uh, express joy, um, particularly uh, around having uh, her her nephew, who she fights to have put on the recording despite um, having an ex- uh, an intense stutter. But, uh, but yeah, so it's not really about, it's not a, anything that's meant to send you away with a sense of Ma Rainey's life. Um, it's really, um, it's really just a, a, a kind of a, a micro scaled story about, uh, black artists, um, and, uh, having to interface with white gatekeepers and, uh, white cultural gatekeepers and the pound of flesh that black artists have to pay, um, in, uh, in a sort of a white supremacist culture. So, um, and in that way, it's really a kind of a companion film to the 40 year old version in a way, mm. um, which, uh, which, which is a film that we both enjoy the, you, you in particular were a big fan of, um, a few months, I don't know how long ago, two months ago. Um, so I was definitely reminded of that, um, watching this movie, uh, because, you know, in both of them, we are watching black artists at two very different points in time, um, but was still with a lot of similar similarities. Um, trying to basically negotiate being a black person who's an artist who wants to create their art, but then having to, um, you know, having to get past the white cultural gatekeepers who own, who have the, 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 the funding, who have the, the means of production um, to, to do that. And then the compromises that have to be made um, for that to be done. So, and uh, so we see on the one hand, we have Ma, who is a seasoned professional who understands exactly what the game is. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Levy, who is um, who is meant to be understood as being much younger, much greener, um, and with just ambition and confidence for days, 
Um, he has written a few songs that he would like to uh, perform for uh, for this record label as well. So he comes into the day with just so many dreams of uh, of what he thinks he can accomplish. Um, and uh, and is you know he and Ma are very much at loggerheads, um, both philosophically in terms of their respective uh, approach to this session. And then also in a more direct way, uh, with Levy kind of making a play for Ma's girlfriend. Um, so, uh, and you know, it's a play, so there's just lots of speeches, lots of monologues, lots of really kind of overwrought emotion. Um, and you know, I will I will say that in general, between this and Fences, I I'm not feeling so confident that August Wilson's work translates to the screen particularly well um it has just a theatricality to it and uh, a level of monologue heavy emotional fireworks that feels just made for the stage mm. and it gives in both fences and ma Rainey, it gives uh, a company of actors the opportunity to do the work of a lifetime mm-hmm. um uh, but in terms of the actual films themselves I have found them both to be somewhat underwhelming. Um, like this movie for me is first and foremost, just Chadwick Boseman's show entirely. Um, this is of course, as I'm sure we all know, uh, it was his final performance and he does look frail uh, in this film. He definitely, he, you can see that he's, he's physically thin. Um, but the amount, like the, just the life that he channels in this performance. Like this is a side of him that I don't think we've ever seen in any of his other performances. I feel like frequently he was cast to play, you know, n- characters that were more noble, characters that commanded respect, um, you know, characters like Black Panther, characters like um, Thurgood Marshall. And I this, think the closest he, would be in, in The Five Bloods kind of toward the end. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. And 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 in that I felt like he was to me he was such a <clears throat> kind of an, you know, he was not really the the focus of that film, you right, know, to me right. he was um so you know, it was, you know, he didn't make as much of an impression on me in that one since he was, you know, kind of just this this flashback figure. Um but I would agree that yeah, in terms of like the energy that he brought to it was more similar and he probably filmed them more or less back to back. Um so but what he lets loose out of himself in this movie is astonishing. It is an astonishing performance. Um, I just couldn't take my eyes off him the entire time. And I feel like, you know, and it is, of course, you know, there's no way of knowing how we would have felt about this performance if it had, had, you know, if he had, if he was still with us when it came out. Um, But to me, this just felt like an artist who knew that they had a limited time left doing what they love and doing it with just every fiber of passion in their being and just leaving truly all of it on the floor. Absolutely captivating. And, and it's these, these monologues that he delivers are also um, incredibly relevant and painful to watch as well. It's, you know, a lot of, pleading with or challenging or, or confronting God um, about kind yeah. of how the world works and, and um, the hands that people are dealt. And it's, it's impossible not to feel all that, you know, 
both yeah. about you know the acute situation in the in the movie what he what he means also in terms of race and then what it means for the actor's um life it is it it's i know it's rare that gets rare to have an opportunity to to give a performance like that with with such limited time and i think there's nothing like it no no and you're right those those though yeah the, the monologues he has to give yeah that in particular are, are his character yeah basically defying god to to intervene it's yeah it's it's a level of poignant that that's impossible to put into words um so yeah it's just this is this is a, a performance for the ages um, I am all aboard this for best actor across the board. No question. Mm. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just astounding. It's absolutely astounding. And, you know, the entire cast is great. Um, I saw today mm. that I think um, Glenn Turman, the actor who plays Toledo, won best supporting actor from the Los Angeles film critic circle today. Mm. Um, and he was wonderful. Uh, Coleman Domingo, uh, mm. who plays the sort of the most kind of level-headed member of the band who kind of is the, the, the sanity glue um, keeping the operation together is just, it's a oh, exquisite, just uh, a powerful, powerful performance. Um, and, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's an acting showcase, like I said. Um, also, like I was saying, I, I don't think that this is Viola Davis's kind of best moment, not saying she's bad at all, just saying that the, the emotional range of the character and the material is somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. And and I and I do think, I do feel like this movie does does not celebrate her character's queerness so much as has a distaste for it. Mm. Uh, because you know it, there's you know we see her, um, you know she has this girlfriend who is who is uh, considerably younger who is very conventionally beautiful, and um, and we see these clips of 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 the girl standing in front of Ma just kind of dancing and shimmying and shaking her hips. And we cut to Ma just like leering like a prison warden. Um, and it just to me felt very um, retrograde. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and we also see that eventually is a minor spoiler, um, you know, that the girlfriend ends up um, cheating with Levy. Um, and, you know, so it just all in all, it, to me, it was not it was it's not a positive depiction of queerness. Um, we had that same discussion in the house um, about about that relationship. And to me, I felt like it was justified as part of what you sort of already described as um, how Ma Rainey has chosen to um, hold power for herself and, and navigate this industry and, and that she has become this kind of like caricature of a successful, rich white man. Um, and that's how you treat people. That's how you treat um, the, the, the things you have, right? You, you have the car and the people taking care of you and the demands and the, the young girlfriend that you, you leer at. So I feel like it was part of this persona that she needed to live her life through and didn't see it as like a particular note about the queer relationship. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, agree that it is a very particular and uh, ugly kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, how it is sort of, uh, you know, Ma is, you know, if this were, if her character were, you know, a white male, um, it would not be notable. It'd be like, well, yeah, that's how rock stars are. Um, although it's worth pointing out that this movie predates the very concept of a rock star considerably um, mm-hmm. taking place in the 1920s. So it wasn't like she's, you know, she's like, well, what Mick Jagger can do and I can't, you know, like this was, you know, this takes place well before that. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll give you that point. But for me, it's still just I was uneasy. Um, mm-hmm. It just felt very. Yeah, it just felt like Queen Latifah in Chicago. It just felt like, mm. um, you know, it was just a little, a little dicey. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, um, that aside, acting showcase. I think the cinematography in this film was stunning. Absolutely um, stunning. The yeah, makeup little, work, the costumes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, the direction. I, I also, sense, sense also like a contained play, lots of monologue, and and I think that it is very dynamic given those constraints. It, it just takes off like a rocket from the beginning and you're just kind of holding on, I think, the whole time. Mm, but it, right. it is hard to look at this movie outside of Ch- uh, Chadwick Boseman aspect. It's fine, ultimately. Um, it's, the, it's the reason to see it. It's the reason to see it. And I'm giving it a binge it. I'm giving Chadwick a binge it. The movie I'm giving a consume. All right, then. Yeah. Well... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Marini's Black Bottom is streaming on Netflix and it is rated R. What are we on? Four? Movie number four? Four. It's so funny the order these movies are in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Keeping your toes. Bob Weave, Bob Weave. <laughs> Let them all talk. The story of a celebrated author who takes a journey with some old friends to have some fun and heal old wounds. Her nephew comes along to wrangle the ladies as well as her literary agent, who is desperate to find out about her next book <laughs> now rebecca you and i have taken a cruise together <laughs> we have that, i knew nothing about this movie when i turned it on so um there, you know one of the intro scenes is in cleveland and then everyone's on That's a right. cruise and it, it was a very nice feeling to look at them. i forgot about the cleveland part that's right yeah they're like out in the flats or something mm. oh my god yeah so i mean i i, I just i i had to push this one in just because it's a cruise movie. It's a cruise movie. Well, it, and, not a cruise. You know, a year and a half ago, called, we were on a cruise. What's that? They're not called cruises. That's they're right. called it's a crossing. A crossings. Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just say, also, speaking of which, um, last night I watched an early screener for another Lucas Hedges movie called French Exit that's coming out in a bit. And in that movie, um, he plays the son of Michelle Pfeiffer. And they also, and I kid you not, take a crossing from North America to Europe. Really? It is and the it's not the entire movie, but it's probably a good third of the movie is huh. them on this on this uh, ocean liner crossing the Atlantic. Wow. So so Lucas Hedges' new thing is like movies where he crosses an ocean on a ship and he's like minding a, a baby boomer A-list actress. And that's that's just kind of what he does now. Um, wow, he's so, always by he, the sea. He is. He is always by the CO. Wasn't he in Waves? And he was in Waves. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's really drawn. He's drawn to. He must be. Uh, he must be a water sign. That one. Um, and <laughs> he's also forty two. Really, he's also forty two. Fun fact. Um, and in both this movie and in French Exit, he has the exact same hair length and the exact same wardrobe. So it's just oh, very. Okay. I don't. I don't know if he just like literally just hung out on the ship until the, the crew came in and it's just like, <laughs> all right, let's knock this one out. Um, so, but no, let them all talk is directed by Steven Soderbergh and, um, and much has been written about the way that it was made because, you know, they did film it on an actual cruise, uh, aboard the Queen Mary two. Oh, really? Yes. Um, and so they had to coordinate, they had three weeks cause I think, I don't know if that's how long it takes or, or to, to cross from the, over the, uh, the Atlantic. Um, but they had three weeks to shoot it and they had to like coordinate with the ship in terms of like, okay, we are going to be in this room for these hours, da, 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 da. Um, and, uh, and also 
the movie had um, a, a semi-improvised approach to the dialogue, um, wherein uh, the actors, in Steven Soderbergh's words, were told what to say, but they weren't told how to say it. Huh. So, uh, which I mean, I gives the... Like you the, can only yeah. trust Meryl Streep, uh, <laughs> Candace Bergen, and Diane Weiss to do. Yeah, they, they got it. They can handle it. It's like that other old broad movie we saw last year, which really which felt like they improvised their own dialogue. Palms. Um, the club. one in the book club, yeah. <laughs> which also had Candy Bergen in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is this is basically yeah, this is like the art house equivalent um, <laughs> uh, of uh, of that one and of Palms. Uh, Justice for Jackie Weaver, but um, but yeah, so this this is. This really, it is, it is a treat. It's just a real treat. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has that swinging kind of like Henry Mancini score. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it, it looks like a million bucks, like just like the, 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 the lighting, the co- the color quality, um, is incredible. You know, we're watching three of the most acclaimed decorated actresses of the last 50 years playing old friends, um, you know, at meal after meal after meal on this ship together. Um, attended to by one of the best young actors of his age. Um, we have Gemma Chan uh, aboard the ship as well as a literary agent, um, having a flirtation with Lucas Hedges. And, you know, the whole the whole thing, I think, similarly to how Ma Rainey felt like a one-act play, this feels very much like a short story to me. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like not much happens per mm-hmm. se, um, but, you know, it chronicles just a key moment in time for these characters. Um, and the way that tensions surface um, and uh, converge, and then we have this kind of unexpected um, finale, if you will. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the whole thing is definitely, a, you know, it's a story told in miniature, um, but it's still very effective and just has that, it just has that kind of short story poignance to it. It has a little mystery to it as well Mm. but it's definitely a salve in a way that balances between the nothingness of ammonite and the fireworks of ma rainey Mm. you have this coming in as as a nice cool at no point are you stressing out about it but you are intrigued to know what's going on i like that about Mm. this movie yeah yeah no it's true um apparently so uh the the uh the woman who wrote this um screenplay such as you will um there was still a screenplay it was not a screenplay in the conventional sense um but uh but the woman who wrote it is uh, is an acclaimed author i'm trying to find her name real quick um and uh and she wrote detailed detailed uh backstories for each of the characters um mm. in just in just full uh full prose um so each of them was given um just paid oh, deborah eisenberg is her name um, and she is, I believe, 74. And uh, Steven Soderbergh reached out to her. He had had the initial kind of just bare bones premise idea. And he reached out to her to flesh it out. And she said in an interview that I was reading that she's like, as a, you know, a woman in her 70s, I was very intrigued in the idea of making a movie that centered multiple women in their 70s. Um, and that did not portray them as caricatures and or the butts of the joke, um, but instead was like fully invested in their humanity and vitality at that age. Um, and which I think comes through very much. Oh, completely. And I think that even like the Lucas Hedges 
aspect, which is like such a foil that it could make it seem ridiculous, doesn't. It it shows mm-hmm. you know, him and his um, flirtations with uh, Yama Chan's character just in parallel as people in different parts of their lives um, exploring a relationship. And it doesn't at all kind of pit the generations against each other. The dynamic between the three friends is really rich. And Candace Bergen mm. kills it in this movie. Oof. So good. Kills so it. Good. The backstory for her character is she just embodies it. I feel it. It's a, it, Her character has like a bit of a, a different circumstance than her friends, right? Uh, Meryl Sheep's character is this acclaimed author. Then we is this um, kind of what, like civil rights attorney. Mm-hmm. And you have Candace Bergen who works in a lingerie store. And the sort of like question mark residing over that relationship, you know, eventually kind of kind of comes out why that is, why it is. But the motivations of her character and the the chaos that it sort of adds to their what would be a pretty calm, what, 50-year friendship is mm-hmm. really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Um, and, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this movie really uh, expertly depicts um, kind of those awkward moments when maybe you do reunite with um, friends who are just long, long, long-time friends um, but maybe you have been out of touch a little bit longer than you realize. Um, and then you summon your friends to this cruise, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, <laughs> and, uh, and then before I know it, you're fighting at dinner. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, uh, but no, I mean like that, that thing of, you know, you're, you, there are those people in our lives who we think of as just like, oh, well, no, like I, yeah, they're, no, they're like my best friend. And then if you were to ask like, well, how long ago did you last speak to them? You'd be like, uh, it's been, you know, it's been, uh, you know, a few years, I think, but you know, when we see each other, we just pick right back up. We just pick right back up. Um, and, um, in this movie, it shows, first of all, how that does not always play out as you think. Uh, sometimes you mm-hmm. don't pick right back up. Sometimes there is a really painful distance between you and you can't seem to surpass it. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, so furthermore, there's that. But with this character in particular, with Meryl's character in this, you know, we get the sense that she maybe, you know, she's lived in her in her thoughts for too long. Um, and she she truly does not think of these women as being distant from her. And she maybe is not fully in touch with the reality of the nature of their relationships. But the other two are. They both understand each other and they know um, that this whole thing is awkward, even if Meryl's character is, is just kind of too wrapped up in her in herself and what she's going through at this point in her life to fully be aware of it. Um, yeah. And the way that conflict plays out really is it's, you know, it's gripping and it feels very real. It's very painful to watch. Want to go on a cruise, Jason? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I will say that watching them, just like you know, just those the lavish staircases and the mm. and the H the, the well appointed atriums, the um, casino, you know, the casino. Um, I mean, like our our best time on our cruise was in the casino on the last night. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it's it brought back a lot of memories, especially since as as you know, I went on two cruises last year. Right. Um, and I swear I did not know twenty twenty was coming, and yet <laughs> I took not one but two cruises uh, in the year twenty nineteen. Um, and I don't regret a second of it. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, and this movie does capture those ways that, you know, whenever you, if you do have beef with a friend you're on a cruise with, you can't really fully get away from them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, even though, unless you buy the internet package for all of your phones, you cannot text that person. 
<laughs> cannot text that person, but you're still going to see him at meals. <laughs> and you're, uh, you're going to see him if you're in the cabin next door. So, <laughs> Indeed. Inescapable. Um, this feels but... like a kind of movie that I'm going to uh, tell people to binge it. I yeah. think um, this is a this is a good amount of. Uh, it's interesting. It it might make you think about communication. Um, it is beautifully acted. It's wonderful to watch, and it's it's just just a perfect movie for for these times. I agree. Binge it. Um, this is probably one of my like. I could see even see this making my top ten list. I'm a big fan of this mm. movie. Yeah, it also it also has an ending. I think that we haven't really talked about at all, but uh, mm-hmm. it's also very rich. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'm trying to it, describe it with again without like <laughs> describing it, but um, it know. it is really good. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. You heard it here first. The ending is really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let them all talk is streaming on HBO Max and it is rated R. Movie number five, Mank. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the script for Citizen Kane. There was another movie recently. I wish I could remember what it was. Um, oh, I know what it was. It was the Charlie Kaufman movie where oh. I felt like I needed to be doing some Wikipedia work while watching it to understand it. Mm-hmm. That one. Yeah. Was for naught, and that was a giant waste of time. Um, <laughs> this one, I feel, made made the movie richer, and I wish I had done some pre-reading going into it. I think the movie is 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 better when you know a little bit more of the backstory. Yeah, to our listeners, I would I I, I will flag if you have not watched this movie. Um, there are actually many articles that are exactly what Rebecca is describing out there. Damn it. Um, so, <laughs> Perfect. so just Google what to, what to know before watching Mank. And I think you'll see a number of, uh, a number of, uh, blogs and entertainment websites kind of had similar thoughts when they watched it. So again, as with your Ammonite portrait of a lady comparison, <laughs> it is, uh, it is, uh, yeah, others, others have also shared in that, in that insight. And, uh. Yeah, the movie definitely, I mean, it's, it's, it definitely assumes a high, a high level of, of knowledge and awareness with the milieu that it depicts. Um, that is for certain. Um, this is directed by David Fincher. And it's based on a screenplay that apparently actually was written by his father, uh, Jack Fincher. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a very personal project for, um, for David Fincher to be um, creating a film based on one of his father's scripts. Um and I, 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 you know, I, I, David Fincher is a notorious, notorious, notorious perfectionist. And, you know, I, I always look forward to his movies since I know um, just how much work he puts into um, finishing each one. Mm. You know, this is a director who more than any other director is notorious for doing upwards of 80 takes of a single scene. Wow. Um, so he, you know, knows exactly what he wants and he does not stop until he gets that thing. So, but I, I can't say that I feel that Mank is one of his more notable films. Uh, ultimately, it feels pretty slight. Um, you know, the story I did not find particularly compelling. Um, you know, we have a, a you know Gary Oldman playing um, Herman Mankiewicz, and you know we we you know see that you know he's this playwright and Orson Welles was a fan so Orson Welles asked him to write the script for Citizen Kane and then it orders him to go dry out at some ranch somewhere while he does so because he's such a problem problem drinker that 
Um, he knows it won't be done unless he's under like fully supervised care. Um, and then we kind of have the backstory unfold um, of Mankiewicz's own connections to the inspirations behind Citizen Kane, um, William Randolph Hearst and his uh, actress girlfriend, Marianne Davies. Um, so, you know, uh, who's uh, the latter, which is played by Amanda Seyfried, who is getting a lot of a lot of awards buzz for this. But I can't say that I mm. quite fully see that in this performance. Like, I think she's 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 good. Um, you know, uh, she, uh, you know, she certainly looks the part, uh, but I, I can't say that I will be voting for her in any of my critics meetings this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's the kind of, you know, the backdrop and, and just before I forget the one movie that this, that this made me think of, um, that to me is a much, much better film. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich made a movie a few years back called the cat's meow, um, that had a lot of overlap with the characters in this. Um, William Randolph Hearst was a character. Marianne Davies was a character played in that film by Kirsten Dunst. Um, the gossip columnist Hedda Hopper uh, is a character in both. And that movie is a, is a really fascinating story about uh, how all these different people in Hearst's orbit went on um went on a cruise oh, we're back in cruise territory um they, <laughs> they, they 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 went out on his except for in this case it was his just his giant yacht and they all are out on this yacht and while they're aboard the yacht um one of the people aboard is murdered um and then they all kind of have to figure out what to do and it's based on a true story mm. um so I, I would recommend before anyone watch Mank, I would recommend the cat's meow first. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, this, it, the attention to detail in Mank, of course, is unparalleled. That's classic venture. Um, you know, it definitely has a very, very strong sense of place um, in recreating um, its setting, uh, you know, and it has, it has a very um, timely storyline involving this sort of coordination between uh, between Hearst, um, who of course was a, a publishing magnate, newspaper magnate, uh, and the head of a studio, um, to essentially promote conservative interests, um, uh, to you know use their influence as you know heads of media to uh, to push through um, you know uh, uh, in in a local in a Los Angeles election to push through a, a Republican candidate uh, over. Um, over someone perceived as being a socialist. So, but I don't know, Rebecca, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I mean, I think there's always a value in, you know, showing people that what you think is happening for the first time is not happening for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that there is a long history of, um, uh, money and power crossing lines between, uh, journalism, uh, or just the sharing of information, uh, publishing and politics. Um, as well as, you know, titans of industry. Um, I guess I felt like I was missing what was interesting because I, you know, was, I kept being derailed by looking up Wikipedia articles. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then thinking back, it it is kind of a thin story. I think you have to be sold on like the importance of Citizen Kane as a movie to really be invested in backstory and the motivations behind writing it. There is a seductive quality to that overlap between Hollywood and and politics and and industry that made me want to understand it more. But um, but I do think at the end of the day, it does fall a little flat, even yeah. even after reading the required the required <laughs> pre reading for it. 
<laughs> Maybe even once you caught up on your syllabus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I would agree. Um, I don't really have much more to say about this one. Um, I, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not a movie that I would um, champion in any awards categories uh, other than technical ones. Of course, cinematography, art direction, costume design, all those things are, are incredible. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't even, you know, particularly care for Gary Oldman's performance. No. Um, like I'm, I'm, I think that he actually probably was doing an incredible job, but he's just really unlikable uh, <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and in general. So, and in general, and in general. Um, he was once rude to me in an interview, so right. <laughs> I, I have my own my own bone to pick with Mr. Oldman uh, for uh, for sticking his tongue out of me when I asked him about Sid and Nancy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I yeah, suppose I is actually... I was going to say, which I guess is a, a very Sid vicious response to have. So in that way, maybe mm. it actually was a brilliant response. But uh, but go on. You just see this like you know end of year Christmas time you know Hollywood movie about Hollywood uh, done in the style of a 1930s film with Gary Oldman, and there's a little bit of an eye roll that goes on there, right? Mm-hmm. It would have maybe been refreshing casting somebody fresh faced. Yeah, I think Gary Oldman is is a good has a good twenty years at least on the actual man he's playing at that point in his life, um, as also underscored by the severe age difference between Oldman mm-hmm. and the actress who plays his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, this movie is a consume for me. Same consume as well. It is streaming on Netflix and rated R. Our last movie of the week is Sound of Metal. Iterant punk metal drummer Ruben begins to experience intermittent hair loss. When a specialist tells him his condition will rapidly worsen, he thinks his music career, and with it his life, is over. His bandmate and girlfriend Lou checks the recovering heroin addict into a secluded sober house for the deaf in hopes it will prevent a relapse and help him learn to adapt to his new situation. So our, so, our, our listeners, just to make sure, uh, <laughs> to me it sounded like you said at the beginning that he was experiencing the beginnings of hair loss. So just... just, just <laughs> did, did I? Just, <laughs> it sounds like it's not like you said you're like you're uh, you're like uh, it's beginning the, the beginnings of hair loss and I'm like no 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 <laughs> hearing hearing loss uh, uh, yeah, so yeah it's not that tragic um, no. <laughs> so when we kind of when when Jason collects the the movies that we're we're uh, are in the running for review of the week um, usually I kind of watch them all at the end. And and then I'll ask him like, what's the one? Like, there are a lot of movies. What's the one that's at the bottom of the list? And and this one was at the bottom of the list. Had you already seen it when you told me that? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And not because that's bad. So let me explain myself. Um, <laughs> the reason I said that the reason I put this last um, was because I felt like I, we would have the least to say about it. Because it's so good. Yeah. Ah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I was just kind of like, well, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like a really good movie. It's a world class bummer. Um, and, <laughs> and it's like, OK, yeah, well, you know, that one that one writes itself. Uh, so I just felt like we would have better conversations about the rest of them. Um, mm. This one is just kind of like, well, yeah, it's great. Moving on. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, but 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 yes, go on. So that was my reasoning in, 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 in having this one uh, be the one that I thought we could sit out because it's also one of the smaller films and I was like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Cool. Um, but, uh, I was certainly, I, I, you know, would have recommended it, but, uh, but yes, go on. This is my pick of the week. All right. Do you have a pick of the week this week? Um, I guess it's let them all talk. Mm, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That, that tracks for you. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> I honestly thought you'd make a lot more jokes about me during that review. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I mean, you know, like, you know, of course, Jason loves a movie with, you know, Meryl Streep, Diane Weiss, and Candace Bergen in it, you know. Um, but, uh, but yes, um, proceed. Riz Ahmed plays a uh, um, punk sort of like noise band rock drummer in a two-piece band with his girlfriend. And this one also kind of jumps right into things. You see their performance and then you see him start to experience hear loss, um, hear, hearing loss. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's that the thing. You're, you're leaving off the gerund. It has to be hearing, hearing loss. loss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hearing, hearing loss. First thing to say about this movie is that it is incredibly clever and detailed with how it handles the sound design of the journey that Ruben takes through losing his hearing. Moments where you are experiencing the movie as a hearing person, if you are a hearing person. Uh, I believe the whole movie was closed captioned. There is a portion, though, where he is learning uh, American Sign Language where it is not captioned. And then as he starts to understand it, it is captioned, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. He gets a cochlear implant um, in the movie and... I, I don't have an experience uh, with hearing loss, but I feel like the detail, they made you feel like you were on the journey with him by really yeah. manipulating the the sound. Yeah, I mean, the sound design is the star of the show um, by far. Uh, it has gotten so much attention and rightfully so. It is like you, it, it, it will make you think about sound and how sound is designed for a movie in a way that no other movie ever has. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and at times, I mean, it's downright chilling. Um, yeah, the, the way that, Whenever, because, you know, the, when the cochlear implant, uh, which I mean, like mild spoiler that he gets that, but, um, you know, like when, when we hear how that sounds to him, it is, it's a, it's a terrible moment in a way. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, we're all accustomed to, we see those videos of people hearing for the first time and starting to cry and, um, you know, but, uh, but this is, this is not that, um, I mean, he, he is startled and delighted at first to actually he have hearing return but the, then the the realities of the limitations of how the cochlear implant translates sound um it's i mean like i still feel a pit in my stomach just thinking about um feeling walking on that journey with him and and having that that realization of like oh it's it's not it's not the same you know it doesn't just give you your full hearing back Right. Between that and, and the like initial loss of hearing mm -hmm. and and watching him interact with people around him um, was anxiety inducing in a, in a very severe way. But in, again, in a way that I didn't feel like was manipulative at all. No, no, not in the slightest. But no, it's it's it's, yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly visceral, this movie. Um, but no, but not sentimental in the slightest because the character of Ruben is I mean, he's a true I mean, he's. Riz Ahmed in this is so, I mean, he's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's a shame that, you know, that we have this up against Chadwick Boseman in lead actor oh, because wow. they're both, yeah. they're both so deserving. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he, he plays a character truly as like, you know, the itinerant punk that you described in the, in the synopsis. I mean, like he is, he is combative. He is middle fingers up. Um, he is like, you feel like there's a guy who would start a fight with you at a bar. <laughs> um, you know, like <clears throat> you wish. Is, uh, <laughs> this is a guy that, that Heidi would punch in the face. Um, but also a guy is... who has put in a lot of work to turn his life around. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We learned that he is a, a recovering heroin addict and, you know, he kind of starts off the movie making kale smoothies for his girlfriend and working out and, and taking care of himself. You know, being protective about your hearing is one of those things that we all have been told to do. And a lot of people still dismiss it. Seems like something that you take for granted mm-hmm. um, catches up to him in a way that is so completely life altering when he had just kind of gotten so much of his life together. It's really hard. This movie is he's one of the most sympathetic characters I think we've seen in a film this year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah no it, it is and, and just the the, the layers um, of this story there's so much more to it than I had originally understood mm-hmm. um, you know like it, it's it's like it just it just throws so much in in terms of all the different struggles this character has faced and continues to face um, because you know just on its face the story of uh, a drummer who starts to lose his hearing, like that's enough for a movie mm-hmm. already. <clears throat> um, and then add to that, that he is a recovering addict um, and that his girlfriend senses that he, um, that he could lose his sobriety um, and relapse over this giant life setback and sends him to a sober house for the deaf. Like what? Like there's, there's so much, like it's such a richly layered drama um, and even in, this, and it, the, in their relationship they kind of have this super brief but so knowing of each other exchange where you, his reaction to his losing his hearing is has a violence to it she has a reaction as someone who has experienced self-harm where she needs to remove herself from the situation that sort of like he needs her. They've been together as long as, as he's been sober, but she needs him to be in a healthy state to, to keep her healthy. It's just, but it's also yeah. so not overwrought. Like they do that with, you know, he can't hear at this point. So they kind of do it with a bit of glances and just a few words. Um, but it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia Cook plays the girlfriend and she's incredible. Um, she also does her own singing um, in the oh. performance scenes. That's really her roaring. Wow. Um, she she worked with like a female heavy metal singer too to figure out how to like do that with her voice. Um, so uh, yeah, it's and the places this movie goes <clears throat> are really unexpected. Like the whole final act of this movie, I could never have seen coming in a million years. Mm-hmm. You know, not not that it like, you know, it's not like a Shyamalan thing, you know, it isn't like switched into a different reality. It's not Nolan time, which, by the way, I finally watched Tenet and fuck that movie. Fuck that movie. <laughs> Christopher Nolan has finally vanished up his own ass. We might never hear from him again. Um, but anyway, so, you know, so it's still in the same reality, but just the places that it goes with Ruben's journey um, and his relationship and his relationship to his, you know, to both to his, his girlfriend and to his, uh, his hearing, um, it's incredible. And the final, and the final scene in this movie is chef's kiss. It's, it's so powerful and so, so, so well done. This movie is just, just a delight. Well, a hard... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I call it a delight. But... I, I don't know. It is, it feels delightful to me. I feel like this movie just hits a place in, uh, that so many movies haven't in, in a while where I understand the range of this character. Things don't feel unbelievable. I was comparing this earlier to that movie. Uh, was it Waves? The one with the high school kid who like suddenly becomes this like roaring drug addict? Yeah, um, yeah, Waves. 
<laughs> that, like <laughs> things just sort of happen. They don't make sense. This, this feels mm-hmm. like a very familiar, realistic story of struggle that he when he goes to talk to this counselor at, at the um, at the recovery house, the lessons he tries to impart on him about stillness and um, what that means, both with his with hearing loss and addiction is just it resonates so deeply about you know what he always he's always trying to fix and change and and hustle to get to the next thing but it's but it's all in in an effort to escape a stillness that um that sort of haunts him i don't Mm. know this movie just feels so poignant and so important and uh again it's my pick of the week for sure it's a binge it um the actor who plays his his um his like counselor sober coach or whatever also um has been getting a lot of supporting actor awards oh my god really yeah that's wonderful yeah he's incredible paul paul racy i think is his name but uh but yeah no this is also a binge for me like it's it's by no means an easy watch um and so and i know that you know people are are by and large still in a generally fragile mental emotional state with the world we live mm-hmm. in true um so it's definitely you're taking on um a, a rough journey um but you can trust this movie um it doesn't it doesn't have any false notes in it um and uh it, it does write by its characters and uh it's just it's yeah it, it's it's just a real flesh and bone human story um that's all too rare it is uh streaming on prime video and it is rated r that's it, Jason. That's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Binge. Jason is on uh, Twitter at... Excess Baggage. I'm at Bite Balance. Thank you for listening. Bye, guys. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There, there goes, goes the, the binge. binge.